The Radical Secular Podcast, a demand for justice, equality, and rational public policy. Subscribe at YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and all the major podcast channels. Visit our website at theradicalsecular.com for articles, transcripts, and our complete library of episodes. Support us on Patreon and follow us on social media. Hello and welcome back to the Radical Secular Podcast. I'm Christoph Defoe. I'm Sean Prophet. Saturday was the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks, attacks which propelled the United States into a devastating 20-year slow-motion military defeat across the mountains, high deserts, and bustling cities of Afghanistan. To discuss this empire-altering series of events, me and Sean are joined by our friend Almir Osmanovich. Almir is a combat veteran who served in Afghanistan in 06. We're grateful for the opportunity to discuss the 9-11 terrorist attacks, the war in Afghanistan, and their aftermath from his unique perspective. But first, I want to remind you that if you like our show, make sure to subscribe, leave a review, check out our Patreon, and tell your friends to listen. New episodes post Mondays at noon Eastern on YouTube and all the major podcast channels. And we publish new articles regularly on our journal at theradicalsecular.com. Okay, let's get into the t-shirt. Sean, what do you got today? Okay, well, I have an interesting t-shirt because it has nothing to do with uh, (laughs) 9-11 or Afghanistan or anything that's that's the topic of our show, except kind of on a tangential level Mm -hmm. because it's talking about capitalism. I want to show this to you right now. Yeah, so it has, it's a shirt with a bunch of uh, brands on it, sort of bottles and cans and stuff like that. looks like something from the 60s almost. Yeah, and what this is, this is, if you see at the top, it says Omega Mart, and Omega Mm. Mart is a project of this artist collective called Meow Wolf, and they are in Las Vegas. Uh, They're in this building called Area 15, which is a huge warehouse, a huge art installation. And what this is, it's an entire store. It's like, it's a whole satire on consumerism and corporations Mm. and brands. And it also incorporates a lot of conspiracy theories and existential stuff. I mean, it's it's really deep when you go in and look at it. And they've thought this through. Uh, there's a lot, there's a whole backstory and I, a corporate identity. And it reminds me a lot of these wacky package stickers from the seventies. I don't know if you uh, ever had those, but it, that what they were is they were sort of satires of actual brands, uh-huh. but they were too close to the brand and they all got it. The, the company was making got sued and shut down, but used to buy these cards and they were these uh, are stickers that came in packs of chewing gum. And uh, so yes, all the kids had these all over their notebooks and backpacks and everything else like that. And it was like, it was weird takes on, on, on brands making fun of brands. And, but o- Omega Mart is a lot smarter. They've, they've done all of their own brands. And they've created an entire corporation, a dummy corporation, which is called the Dram Corporation. Hmm. And it's got this sinister identity. And it's almost like the, the, the woman who's in charge of the corporation is like a, almost like a cult leader. And they hmm. have these weird employee training videos where the, the employees <laughs> are. So, so it's, it's anyway, it's, it's an experience. Anybody uh, who's going to Vegas should not miss this. And especially if you're interested in art or, or, or satire, progressive politics, it's, it's just like it hits all. All the notes very nice and so did you go there recently then yeah i've been there twice i we went gotcha. there recently with a friend who came into town and then we had gone there probably about six months ago uh ourselves and it's just 
It's, it's, I can't even describe what this place is like. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds awesome. Well, one of these days when we finally are able to get on planes, uh, for, 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 for pleasure, um, we'll have to come out there and check it out and we'll do some riding and, and it'll be great. You that know? would be a great time. <laughs> and that would be a great ass time. Um, and so today, uh, my shirt is, um, uh, so my friend, um, let's put it this way. I like cats, um, and I don't necessarily like all cats, but I love my cats, and so it's and it's an ongoing thing, a joke, right, with with my friends and everything like that. So, uh, on my fortieth birthday, which was about a month ago, uh, a buddy of mine got me this shirt, and it is um, it's it's kind of hilarious. I'll show everybody. Ah, it says a cab, which you might think would mean all cops are bastards, but actually. <laughs> It has a picture of a cat and it says all cats are beautiful. Yeah. And so and it's also that is also like an anti-fascist sort of symbol as well. So my friend was like, you are a heart really into anti-fascism, which is very, very true. I am very anti-fascist. Um, I'm really <laughs> into cats. And also, I love it because my first thought when I saw it was all cops are bastards, which I don't I'm not a big fan of that phrase. I mean, I get why people say it, but like it's but so it's so I was like, oh, wait, that doesn't sound like very me. But then I was like, oh, wait a second, though. <laughs> it's about cats. And I do love cats and hate fascism. So <laughs> it's perfect. Uh, it's a perfect it's a perfect fit. Um, so uh, before we get into the body of the show, um, I'd just like to touch briefly on my recent post on the Radical Secular Journal. It's, a, I guess, a little bit vain, but I, I just want to <laughs> bring it up because um, I just, uh, you know, go ahead and, and if you will, take a look at it. Um, it, it, I, it. Basically, I talk about motorcycling and other stuff, but I also talk about some stuff um, about the Radical Secular. And so like one of the issues that we're wrestling with is is, is our name. It's not really we're wrestling with it, what we're discussing. And we actually, I actually ask for input from our our listeners to uh, come and let us know what you think. So um, about about what direction we should go in. We like hearing people. We're a democratic organization. We like hearing from our from our folks. And by the way, you can earn yourself a sticker um, if uh, and some sort of merch, which we're still working on getting the merch, but we're going to do it. We're doing it. Um, so we're going to get you some merch and stuff like that. So anyway, if you're interested, please do check it out at theradicalsecular.com. Um, and we have a lot of interesting stuff there. We all, we're writing stuff a lot. Uh, Sean, Sean writes a ton of stuff. Uh, Joe writes a ton of stuff. And it's always really thoughtful and really interesting. So please do check out the journal when you get a chance. So, um, Sean, you want to comment on that at all? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm just excited about, you know, everything you had in that, on that article. I'm excited about it. And especially, I just want to encourage everybody <clears throat> to go out and buy Bone Shia, which is Coral mm, Anna Cattile's yes, yes, new of book. We wrote the intro. Christoph and I wrote the intro for that. And so and and it was it was well received. And I think it's just gonna be exciting that uh, we were just very happy to be able to help her with her project. And we're excited to have our, you know, our our kind of description and take on that out there. So, you know, that's that's cool. And also, just you know, since you were mentioning about uh, about motorcycling, it's you know it's a three week countdown for me until riding season starts. Yeah, right, th three weeks to a month, and you know the the key for me is really a high temperature forecast below ninety, which is it doesn't happen around here much <laughs> in in these parts because that means an actual road temperature of like ninety seven, which is about the limit for comfortable riding. And yeah, you know, and and I just want to mention real quick, we have one other exciting 
future goal for our project was uh, coming up with an alternative constitution. And mm. Joe and I were talking about this because like, okay, well, everybody likes to complain about the constitution, what's wrong with it, what we need to fix. It's like, well, we, we need to actually do it. Well, we found someone who actually already has done this and he's uh, he's a UC Berkeley guy. And um, <clears throat> so we made contact with him. He's going to be on the show. So um, that's very I'm excited exciting. about that too. Very exciting stuff, all of that. I'm so glad that you brought up Coral and her book and our intro. Um, I think that was something that you and I worked on together and it was a, a real pleasure to work on it with you, Sean, but also just a real uh, pleasure to be able to contribute to such an important, important story. I mean, it really couldn't be a better crystallization of the sort of stuff that we talk about, why we started this project in the first place. It couldn't possibly be a more clear crystallization of that. And um, and so we're really grateful to have been a part of it. Uh, and so I'm really glad you brought that up, Sean. <laughs> Thank you mm -hmm. for doing that. Um, so let's move uh, on to our, to our guest segment. I am pleased to welcome to the show our friend Almir. I met Almir through my dear friend Lauren when she recruited me to attend a demonstration of sorts at a county council meeting here in New Jersey. It turns out that many of my interests overlap with Almir's, you know, stuff like motorcycling, spending time with family and friends, fighting fucking fascists, mm -hmm. uh, all that. So um, Almir is a really thoughtful, progressive anti-fascist with a unique perspective on the United States involvement in Afghanistan, and I'm looking forward to chatting with him. And so without further ado, The Radical Secular presents Almir. Today, our friend Almir has joined us to share his perspective on 9-11 and the so-called War on Terror. How are you doing, Almir? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Out fucking standing. Now, tell us about your T-shirt, if you will. Uh, so here's one thing that I like. I like I like tacos <laughs> and um, I like riding motorcycles and I like having friends uh, that share my interests. So I'm actually wearing it's it's taco time. Yeah, with a little, with a little taco uh, walking. So it's 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 my way of thanking the uh, the Mexican culture for bringing this great food to us. So I love it. I love it. I am Mexican food is like by far my favorite sort of you know brand or quok brand. Wow, I'm such a capitalist. So sort of my <laughs> my flavor of food. Um, I love it so much, and uh, that's one of the things that like you know I can eat it like three times a week, and tacos especially. I mean tacos, I can put them down like i don't know grapes they're just like boop, boop. they're just so good so good yeah. and like you say i love motorcycles right but it's, uh let, let me let me put a caveat here i don't go to taco bell because <laughs> i don't think that that no. is considered um you know real mexican food i think it, that's more of like corporate mexican food yeah. they don't have real guacamole at taco bell so oh. fuck that well if, if if the food is not made by somebody who who's who knows how to prepare it well, uh, or, you know, it's, it's just not the way it, it's, it is. Right. That's a huge, that's a really important caveat. I always say this, I say this to my wife sometimes. It's like, if you're going to eat fast food, it's like what flavor of, uh, of sort of fast food do you want? Right. Like you can get the, that's Mexican flavor, right? You can get the American flavor, which is like more of a, a more of a uh, more of a uh, McDonald's or or whatever. But the bottom line is, it's all basically the same processed garbage, just like flavored a little bit differently. That's all, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, 
Well, look, before we get into the heavy, nitty-gritty subject matter of our conversation today, uh, speaking of motorcycles, let's talk motorcycles. Um, so, Almir, I'm going to give you a, I don't know, something of a softball question, but um, they're all going to be softball questions. But still, Almir, why is motorcycling so awesome? And why should listeners go and ride a motorcycle right now? Well, for, for me, let me just uh, go into the reason why I started riding motorcycles. For sure. Uh, this was probably back. I mean, I can remember this and it's like one of those vivid memories that everybody has when I was, you know, seven years old. Uh, we had a, a, a guy that was working on our house and I remember him showing up uh, at a stadium, which we had like recess and he had a I don't I don't remember what it was. It was a really old motorcycle. And he, this was back in like. 88 all right this i'm dating myself right now so <laughs> uh he showed up and and he he's like let me take you around the stadium and i hopped in the back of the motorcycle and he took me around the stadium this is one of those times you know we're eastern european so parents you know kind of like it's not like hey you got to put a helmet on it again it's 1988 safety protocols be damned right <laughs> um and it's like one of those things that's you know like i want to get a motorcycle every time it was like you know like i want to get a motorcycle once i get my own house in the garage and a place where i can store a motorcycle i will get a motorcycle um fast forward to 20 2014 um having a wife that just says you know she goes uh just get something you know whatever makes you happy so she kind of pushed me towards it. I got my first motorcycle in 2014, started riding uh, ripe age of 32. Mm. Um, and then, you know, fast forward to 2021, six motorcycles later, two in the garage, <laughs> uh, about 40, 40, 45,000 miles underneath my belt riding. Uh, you know, I don't think I'm going to stop ever. It's, I, I think it's, it's like one of those things that, you know, it, it's like a drug, right? Mm. You know, like you, I can tell people that have never ridden a motorcycle before, like, this is how it feels. This is how, you know, unless you get on the motorcycle and, and whatever size of the engine it is, unless you get on it, I don't think people would understand. Um, my wife, she was on a motorcycle with me a couple of times. Um, it's just that for her, after her car accident, she couldn't, mm. she, you know, her back issues. So she couldn't go on, on rides anymore. So it's, it, it, to me, I feel like it's a little bit of a disconnect because she doesn't go to places with me, but she's not one of those people that, uh, does like, if, if, you know, if I'm there, you can't do this. Um, but she understands it. That's why she, she has no issues with it. Um, you know, she's not telling me, you know, sell your motorcycles. You got to settle down. You're, you're 39 years old. You're going to break something. <laughs> it, it's she, if anything, she's been more of very supportive. I, I bought one motorcycle last year and six months later, I bought another one. Um, she didn't say anything other than, hey, look, the garage has a place for one more motorcycle. And I'm like, oh, oh. wow. Don't, that's don't encourage right there. <laughs> yeah, I told her don't encourage my 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 decisions. That <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's uh, a, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, no, that's it. I mean, uh, it's it's if if people in my in my uh, opinion, mm -hmm. if you really want to understand um, 
you know, the responsibility, the uh, the way the traffic works, the uh, the way uh, what's it called uh, internal combustion engine works, the um, uh, how do you say this? The uh, uh, the responsibility of maintaining anything. I I would say a motorcycle is is one way to go. Uh, the yeah. reason saying is, if your tire blows, you only have one more left, right? <laughs> Whereas on a, in a car, if your tire blows, you have three left, and you can safely move move aside. And not only that, but you're very shielded from the elements. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've been known to be caught in a couple of downpours in the last year. Well, this year alone, where everything counts your uh, your ability to stay awake, uh, your ability to <laughs> Um, to control the motorcycle on the road, um, your ability to to um, stay alert when when uh, an eighteen wheeler truck passes you by, that'll wake you right up, right? And and and, <laughs> and keeping up with the maintenance, especially if you have a chain driven motorcycle and you're out on the rain, which tends to rust and you know mm-hmm. and all that stuff. And YouTube has been a pretty good teacher for these things. I'm not saying that anybody should go out and and YouTube uh, things like, you know, critical race steering and learn it in like 15 minutes. <laughs> right. Don't but go I, do your research, right? Right, right. But I, think you can, <laughs> but I think you can learn in 15 minutes on how to uh, maintain your motorcycle chain and change the sprockets, you know, the front and back sprocket sure. and stuff like that. That's something you can learn on YouTube really, really easily. Something that we didn't have 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, that's absolutely so, right. Yeah. This is like some, one of those answers that's not really a, a simple, I mean, simple answer to give, even though it's like, hey, why do you like motorcycles and why should people hop on a motorcycle? <laughs> no, I mean, it's a complex, it's a complex question. There's a lot of good reasons. There's a lot of various reasons, I think. And I think that what you're saying is right. I mean, I think that it ends up having being very, very personal relationship you have with the motorcycle. Um, also, you know, when you when you go on rides with people, you really bond with them in a way. And I think part of that is because it is so inherently dangerous. And I think there's something about sort of going through it inherently dangerous. I mean, we can, we, we do all the safety stuff that we can do. And I'm not a reckless rider, I'm sure. And I know you're not either. I've ridden with you. Um, but it is, but it is dangerous. And so, you know, I think sort of going through that experience together can be very bonding and there's something about it. Um, Sean, now just to, just to, go around the horn here, Sean, uh, how about you and your, you know, when did you, uh, how did you get into motorcycling? Just, you know, I just want to well, just give you another a chance to sort of talk about this too. Sure. I mean, I will, I, I'll just be real, real brief. I mean, my mm-hmm. dad had a Honda 90 uh, trail bike when I was a kid and I actually mm-hmm. ended up getting that bike when I was like 15 and I used to ride up in the mountains and do stuff. And, and I actually, kind of ran it into a tree at one point oh, man. and, and uh, messed up the bike. But then I got like a, a Yamaha 175 Enduro and I used to ride that around quite a bit on, on dirt when I was, you know, 14, 15 years old. And uh, then later on, when I, as an adult, I got a Yamaha street bike, uh, a cruiser bike and rode that, you know, in the Malibu mountains for a few years. That's like 20 years ago. 
And mm. so I didn't ride for the longest time. And I have to say, like, you guys both kind of make me crazy with your long trips and adventure riding, because <laughs> even though I do have, you know, experience going way back, I'm really still much more of a newbie. And I've got up my game. I Like, I see your adventure uh, videos, Christoph, and, and I see your road videos where you're riding in the rain. Almira. And it's just, I just feel, makes me feel like I have to up my game and get in better shape. I mean, the, this COVID quarantine has been debilitating in terms of not staying physically active and you really need to be in good shape to be on a bike. So especially if the, if you, if you dump the bike over, you got to pick it up. That's, <laughs> it's only happened to me once since I got the new bike, but um, yeah, it, it was at a stop sign, no big deal, but it was, it was quite an effort to get that thing back up by myself. Yeah, and art. You have, you know he uh, you have an art an R twelve fifty, which is a, a beautiful. I mean, absolutely gorgeous motorcycle. Um, it's uh, and but also a very heavy one. <laughs> it's heavy, and I haven't I haven't remotely pushed the limits of what that bike can do. You know, I'm still oh. just taking it slow and easy, and sure. you know, don't want to pop an accidental wheelie. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and that bike will wheelie without even tr like I mean, so easily. I mean, if it didn't, you know, it's a, it's really a beautiful bike, and. Um, well, I am. Um, and so for me, I started, I watched The Long Way Around with Ewan McGregor and stuff like that. And that was like, and that was whenever that came out. And that I was, from that point forward, I was like, I, I want to do this. And, and, and I didn't really get into adventure motorcycling until much, much later, until very recently, actually. But, uh, but I did do quite a bit of riding uh, before that. So I really started in, in 2010. Well, 2010, really, is when I started riding. Um, and I went, I took a course, and the course was great. And I was hooked. Like you guys, you know, it was just like, I was hooked. Like you said, Amir, a drug, it is just like, it's just so great. And so exhilarating. And there's so many different elements about it that I that I love but um so let, let's um Almir give our audience a bit of a background on you uh, in, in many ways you have sort of a quintessentially immigrant to America origin story and frankly it's quite quite inspiring so to the extent that you are comfortable will you share with us uh how you came to live in western New Jersey uh sure well it's it's more like a um a refugee to 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 U.S. citizenship mm -hmm. Um, came to the United States in 1993, uh, born in Bosnia, uh, was there up until 1992 when the, uh, uh, the civil war started. Uh, and then my mom and my sister and myself, uh, kind of decided to make that trek outside of Bosnia, even though it, it was kind of like one of those, um, making the trip across the mountains in, in like a Volkswagen van. Uh, with blackout lights in the middle of the night, mm. um, crossing the mountains and going to Croatia into the refugee camp in uh, April of 19, 1992, where my dad stayed behind for about a year because uh, for uh, males that were, uh, you know, fighting age, they were not allowed to, to leave. So it was my dad, if my dad left, he would have been taking the chance of uh, being taken, uh, you know, by by the Croats or the Serbs at any of the checkpoints, and and ended up probably in a concentration camp. He he stayed behind for about a year, uh, and then in 1993, in August, uh, we were given a permission by the U.S. Embassy in in in, in Croatia to come to United States. Uh, we moved to Connecticut first. Uh, we were there for about a year. Um, and then my parents moved to New York where they had a, uh, more of a substantial, uh, Balkan 
uh, community. You know, her uh, her nieces and nephews actually lived here for a while. So we moved, um, found an apartment, and that was in 1994. Uh, and then up to up to 2004, I was really in in New York, uh, Queens. I finished college there. I I did ROTC in St. John's while I was doing my computer science degree. And in 2004, May, I uh, commissioned the U.S. Army, uh, active duty, went down to Fort Benning for my training. Uh, I was down there till 2005. And then in 2006, I ended up in Afghanistan for 16 months up in 2007. And then leaving, leaving the, uh, the active duty in 2008, moving down to Queens. And then in 2009, 2010, I, uh, the job prospects changed kind of like we we're going through that recession. And in 2012, uh, moved to New Jersey. We, we bought a house. My wife was finishing up her nursing degree. So, mm. uh, up until 2017, she was in school and, um, you know, we, we bought a house here. We, we kind of, you know, like start a new life, being away from my parents. Uh, that's a different story. But uh, Eastern European upbringing, it's not really, uh, you know, it, it depends from family to family. My family wasn't so easy to deal with when it came down to down to things. But uh, mm. fast forward to 2021, we've been here for nine years now. Uh, nice. My wife is doing her DNP in Rutgers University here. Uh, she's and um I, I finished my master's in system engineering and in about three years, I'll be out of the military for good um, and kind of put uh, an end to that chapter of my life. Like 20 sure. Years, so. Yeah. I mean, that is a really, first of all, just, you know, inspiring story in some sense. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's it, just because, you know, fleeing, right. <clears throat> that sort of situation, making it to the United States and really just sort of, it just really reinforces this idea that folks that come from, um, from, you know, refugees, especially, um, there is a real, for example, the, uh, uh, Vietnamese, uh, refugees after, after the war, they, refugees tend to really, in some sense, thrive, right? Because mm -hmm. there's this sort of like this fervor of like, holy shit, I made it, I'm safe. And I want to contribute. And, and not only did you contribute, you end up in you literally in the military, right? In the most the, the the most profound way, really, in some ways, one can contribute to uh to the nation. And um just so everybody knows, I talked about this at the top, but uh, you know, you and I met through a friend of mine, um uh because we were in we went to that um how do you say the uh, council meeting. And you remember and and you and I became friends, we became friends, it was a virtual uh, meeting, but we became friends uh, after that. And, um, and so just talk about being a progressive in the county that you live in, which is not very progressive. So, um, you know, for, for, for myself, uh, just, just a little background. I, I really been, um, keen into the things that I am right now, uh, being in the military and kind of like not being um, politically active, you kind of get ignorant to the things that are mm. happening around you, right? So I, I would probably say for me, the, um, the, the great awakening or the way you want to put it was probably in 2017 after the 2016 election. Mm -hmm. um, when, when you start kind of um, 
instead of being angry uh, at the things that are happening, uh, you, you kind of get introduced to people that say, like, don't get angry, like, understand why these things are happening. Like, the, the, he, here are some of the references you can you can explore, you can you can start reading. And so so my journey kind of went from. And this is the 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 the, ra- the rise of the YouTube right as you want to say, like in 2016, it was like the deviation between going down that rabbit hole to the right and then actually, you know, people, as they say, think for yourself, but thinking for myself has led me to the left, mm-hmm. right? Where uh, I kind of got into the point where I started learning about my own background, about my own country, like, you know, where I was born, the reasons why things were happening. Also, like the things... That, that are happening in the United States. And even though, you know, the, the things that you said, you know, being a refugee coming to United States, I think, and in my honest opinion, coming from Europe, uh, refugees that come from Europe and the refugees that come from anywhere else in the world in the United States have a completely different experience because based on, um, on their uh, skin color, right? Mm. Because as you know, as much as people or humans don't don't like to say this, we are very visual based people. If uh, and if you see somebody that's out of place, you're you're more likely to have a bias against them or a different bias um, as as opposed to somebody that looks like you. Right. For sure. So moving to Sussex County uh, in 2012. Uh, being the, the, the privilege that I was born into, um, people didn't really look at me differently, mm-hmm. right? And and even in the military or even, you know, the people that I uh, used to and still associate with uh, tend to share some of the alternative views on people that they have, right? Like, you know, one of my colleagues um at, at work during lunchtime, we got into uh, talking about refugees and he basically said like, well, you know how it is. These people never leave. And, you know, and you should know. Right. I'm like, well, is this because, you know, I came to the United States and and, you know, when I was young and 12 years later, this this was my house, home. Right. This is the country of uh, what I like to call home. And. I asked him, I was like, well, if if I'm an example and I'm a first generation American and you're like sixth generation Dutch, what is what is there for you to say? Like, why didn't your family come to the United States and then leave? Right. Right. Um, exactly. Exactly. It's a great point. <laughs> right. And, and, and going to the native, uh, you know, the Native Americans or who the natives are here, uh, how is it that you didn't come back and like it's one of those like jarring um conversation pieces where he kind of like or he or she, you know like they pivot I, this is more than one person they pivot to more like well we had the uh the weapons and the arms to you know like they should they should they should have fought us right and what i'm like crazy thing to say yeah it, well, <laughs> victim blaming right victim well blaming. It, it, right but it's 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 not even that it's like the guy it's like one of those ignorant statements, right? Like he, he's, he's a very good person. Like he's one of my veteran friends and, and, you know, like he, he has come and helped us out when we needed help. Uh, you know, he, uh, 
wouldn't wouldn't hurt a person. It's just that sometimes those ignorant statements, uh, I think people fail to analyze them, right? Because it's like, you know, uh, people always say like, well, individ- individualism, right? Okay, well, you should have individually thought about what you said. And then people like, well, might makes right, right? Where, yeah. where the Eastern Europeans or the Western Europeans had the weapons and and the inability to kind of analyze the culture, the farming, and why it led to uh, advancement in weaponry in Europe and not in the United States or, or in Americas with the uh, Native Americans. It, that's kind of like what we're talking about right now in our society, where it comes down to, you know, critical race theory. It's mm-hmm. not about like, you're white, you should apologize, but it's more like, hey, you're white you sh- or, or you're an American, you kind of need to realize that this is the privilege that you were born into. It's mm-hmm. not your fault. There were slaves, but you should kind of understand why there, there's a discrepancy between, you know, black people in the United States and white people in the United States, Hispanic people and Native Americans. It's like it's not that anybody's making you say you're sorry everywhere you go. It's more of like, these laws were based on the privilege to keep people down. It's it's not Absolutely. that me as a white person should go around apologizing to everybody, even though I, you know, I came to the United States in 93. My parents had nothing to do with it. But there's a certain privilege that they were born into where they, they were never racially profiled in the United States. Right. Um, they, they were able to you know, no fault of their own, talk their way out of a ticket, you know, speeding ticket or a mm-hmm. red light ticket or, or you know, um, stuff like that. They were able to buy a house. They were able to get credit without being looked at at their race. They were able to to pay rent on their apartment while, without being gouged, you know, being right. having to pay like, you know, six, six months ahead in their, um, mm-hmm. um, what's it called? Security deposit, security or, deposit, know. right? It's it's stuff like that, and 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 when people, you know, and I've encountered this, it's like, uh, well, it's not my fault. I'm like, nobody's saying it's your fault, it's, right? It's, it's more of like, don't talk about it if you don't understand it. You yeah, know? that's a constant refrain, Sean. What did you what were you about to say? Well, I was going to just say I would settle for just white people admitting that Native Americans and Black people had harder lives like that's all like just <laughs> right. admit, just acknowledge that it was not fun to go through that experience of being conquered or enslaved <laughs> right it's just like as if the, and it's just like so crazy that we have to say that out loud but we really really do and and i really think it's important almir you know you, i think what you brought up there is an important distinction right coming in as an immigrant um say from haiti um, it, or from, uh, from Somalia is a, or, or frankly from, um, you know, from, uh, say Saudi Arabia is a really different experience than coming as a refugee or an immigrant from, uh, from, from Eastern Europe or Western Europe, right? There, there is, and, and really it comes down, comes down to the color of the skin. Let's, let's be frank about that. Right. Well, yeah. you, you know, uh, I don't know when it was, uh, but uh, I, I don't like talking about Trump, but it, I, I don't remember when he said it, but he basically said that he would like more people from Norway yeah. than from, yeah. from other countries. And if that doesn't tell you what 
what what that you know where that thinking goes into right i mean you don't have to tell him he's racist but that's just the the thinking that that you know like you kind of go to it it's it's weird yeah right? it's, I, it, it's dog whistles, we all have dog fog horns right we all have biases right like you know um and that could be because we watch too much tv we watch too much law and order we watch too much <laughs> uh the wire or stuff like that where people don't understand but all those shows kind of uh sculpt your thinking when when you're walking in let's say uh harlem mm-hmm. or you're walking you're walking on a street of of east new york or you're you're walking uh, you know you're you're in brooklyn or you're in newark or you're in you know in in any of these places that have a negative connotation when it comes down to uh law and order or you know uh, it, uh any other procedural uh, shows that you look at it's people don't understand that even though you might not think that way your the tv and 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 everything that you watch play into the for, forming the psyche that you form against or for for the people that you deal with on on a daily basis a good Absolutely. example of that is uh, christopher columbus let's 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 look at that guy real quick i mean i don't really remember learning anything negative about him when I was in school. It's <laughs> a great right? point. And, he was and, just like a hero, right? Right. And, 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 you know, going from that guy going to, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. And how all these conservatives uh, latch onto his name and saying like, well, why can't you just do things the way he did? He was, Ugh. he was a peaceful person. He, he did, he did things peacefully. Why does the, <laughs> You know, BLM have to, you know, riot and all that stuff. I'm like, well, I don't have I don't have, you know, three credits worth of material to talk to you about in 15 minutes right now. <laughs> and, and I don't want to be the guy that says, here, read these books or go to the you know public library and tell the librarian, hi, I'm an ignorant person. Please educate <laughs> me on this, on these things. I just don't right, think that right. I should be. I mean, I don't know everything. I have a lot to go when it comes down to, you know, being satisfied with my knowledge. But it, it kind of irks me when people that don't even know who Frederick Douglass is talk about critical race theory. Oh, that's or, a really great point. A or, really or talk good. about how how, um, you know, the slave owners were really the guys who, were, who wanted to end slavery because they didn't want to clothe and and feed all these slaves. Oh, and I'm God. like. <laughs> yeah, because because these people grew up in 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 five star you know hotels and they were eating you know like two Michelin star food yeah you know and in return of their could you please you know pick this cotton for us to feed you right no. Sean Sean I want to give you a chance to jump in here. There's so many of these tropes like this, and uh, you know, we, we Christoph and I have talked about it all the time. Martin Luther King was murdered, okay, by a white supremacist. <laughs> right. There's one little detail they don't mention, you know. And the other the other detail is like, <clears throat> you get people like Larry Elder, who just recently said that he thought that slave owners were the ones who should get reparations because they had their property taken from them. Ugh. And it's like there there are just so many of these ignorant uh, attitudes and ideas flying around that it's almost hard to imagine. It really, really is. Well, guys, I, <laughs> cops, <laughs> cops. <Yeah. laughs> uh, speaking of cops, um, I want to and and you know, firemen and everything else. Um, 
I want to move on to our uh, sort of heavy topic um, because uh, Saturday was the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. We all know what happened on that fateful day, and we are all aware of the 20-year war that that day spawned. What's less known, or at least it was to me, is how capitalism actually cost some lives that day, um, and more than it typically does. The, uh, the Washington Post reports, quote, had the World Trade Center been built in the late 1960s and early 1970s, been erected according to the building code in effect since 1938, it is likely that a very different World Trade Center would have been built. Instead, it was constructed according to a new code that the real estate industry had avidly promoted, a code that made it cheaper and more lucrative to buy, to build and own skyscrapers. It increased the floor space available for rent, cutting back on the areas that had been devoted under earlier law to evacuation and exit. The result, getting everyone out on 9-11 was virtually impossible. Under the new rules, the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey was able to rent three quarters of each floor of the World Trade Center, 20, a 21% increase over the yield of older skyscrapers. And the cost was dear. Some 1,000 people inside the North Tower who initially survived the impact of, of American Airlines Flight 11 could not reach an open staircase. Their fate was sealed nearly four decades earlier when the staircases were clustered in the core of the building and fire stairs were eliminated as a wasteful use of valuable space. The towers embodied the power of American capitalism, but their design embodied the folly of American greed. On that day, both conditions proved fatal. End quote. Now, Almir, would you like to react to that passage? Doesn't uh, capitalism poison everything? Well, Christoph, I just want to say that you reading that article uh, makes you uh, a socialist communist and an anti-patriotic uh, American <laughs> because you are diverting to the fact that, that a bunch of people from uh, a place that I don't like flew some planes into uh, in, into into buildings because they don't like the way Americans live. Right. <laughs> uh, no, uh, that was my way, way of segueing into this. Uh, the issue here and the article that you um, quoted and the underlying issue is that if you if you actually posted something that's publicly not public knowledge to to your friends on social media and stuff like that, they will probably call you out for not caring for those 3,500 innocent Americans that have um, that have died that day, right? Um, but abs absolutely, I, I think that the the uh, as they say, crony capitalism, regardless what it is, state capitalism or private capitalism, um, takes advantage of of the people that don't have any power to make policies or to represent themselves in, in a public discourse yeah. where um, I know tomorrow, I mean, I know on the, on the 11th, I, I know that, you know, there are going to be a lot of flags that are going to be flown, um, you know, half mast. And we're going to talk about all the, uh, the people that we've lost on that day, but we really don't talk about the, the human uh, price that, that, the Americans have paid since that day, mm. um, since, let's say, you know, eight o'clock in the morning on the 11th. But the tragedy that started, you know, on the next day or let's say 
uh, one one minute after midnight, leading us on to the you know September twelfth, where we started a a twenty year war. That, um, unless you're living under the rock, uh, if in the past couple of weeks we pulled completely out, and whatever we have built in the last twenty years has collapsed. Not even as dominoes, because dominoes when they collapse, you can see it coming. Mm. It's the the government, the Afghan government, the Afghan military, the the Afghan infrastructure collapsed almost immediately. And I don't know about you, but when I, you know, when somebody builds a house, when when a contractor builds a house, even though contractors in the United States would love to have this, the second they finish building a house and then they leave there's something wrong if that house collapses almost immediately, <laughs> right? They must have done something not right. Right. And, and, and the way that, that, you know, the September 11th is still being used as, you know, as a sacrifice, as, as, as something that Americans endured, I don't think we're seeing the bigger picture here. I don't think that a lot of people are actually cognizant on going back and realizing that we can't be patriotic without fixing the underlying issues that we have with the system that we support knowingly or unknowingly. Mm-hmm. Whereas we've, we've asked our least privileged, let's say, let's put it that way, least privileged members of society to go and fix issues 10,000 miles away from their own homes without understanding that they've been plucked outside of their own underprivileged societies and communities to go and do this. Because a lot of these young men and women in the, in the military usually join the military because there is no other way out of the society that mm-hmm. they've been. There is, you know, they're they're the only person capable of serving and providing for their families, or they want to stop the cycle of, of poverty. So they leave their house and they join because everywhere for since the beginning of times, military service has been something that people were always proud of. Sure. And, sure. and they should be. Absolutely. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just Mm -hmm. the issue that I have uh, after 20 years of being in Afghanistan is that we have nothing to show for it. Yeah. Right. That we have we have lost not only American lives. Let's let's it. We only we care about American lives because we live in the United States. And a lot of a lot of people like to use that as camp fodder for for like you know, especially now when there's a different president in, in the office, uh, we, we like to use that as a reason to go back, right? Because I don't, many times I've heard it of like, I don't want my, my, uh, my combat to be for nothing. Mm-hmm. I don't want the deaths of Americans to be for nothing. But yet, in, in any war, especially the ones that we, we, we engage ourselves against non-white people, we forget to, to mention 
the the cost of of that war for the people who who are native to those countries right and and my experience has been um you know i've talked to a, a bunch of people there uh through my interpreter was you know americans leave we have we have the uh the the privilege of serving in afghanistan and leaving mm-hmm. right where I went to Afghanistan in 2006 and I came home in 2007. Whereas the people in villages and towns and, um, you know, the, the areas that I visited are probably still there and they mm-hmm. have to deal with the repercussions of helping the Americans or going against, going against the grain. I mean, how would how would we i mean same thing happened in the united states but you know centuries ago where uh people who were loyalists right. after the american revolution had to leave the, the the country right the new united states to go back to britain because of the repercussions of them being collaborators or and canada. We for, they went to right. canada too some right, right right we forget we forget all these things because we don't we don't focus on these itty bitty intricate issues in our history classes. We this goes back to our education system where where we are very test oriented. We have, mm-hmm. you know, we we just like listen. Let me get a ninety five on this test, and you can pass. And and you know, get take your SATs, get a perfect score, go to Harvard, right? Yeah. Then then yeah. by going to Harvard, I'm gonna get a good job. But we don't do a good <laughs> job. That gets us back to the capitalism thing, right? Right. Yeah. Asking questions. <laughs> right. That, Full circle. Yeah, um, that's another that's another branch that that it's it, going down. That thing I think we'll be here to like. We'll be here all day. So a I week, shot, all week. A week Sean, from I, today, yeah. Shaw, I want. I just want to give you a chance, Sean, to comment on nine eleven um, as well. Uh, what? Yeah. What are your well, thoughts? I, I want to. I want to. I want to uh, circle back a little bit and just say, sure. Almir, how how ironic I think it is that you have been you have been directly involved in two different wars, right? Yeah. Like that's that's crazy. You escape one war only to go fight in another war. You know, in a similar part of the world. I mean, Afghanistan is not that far from your 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 home country. So it's just like right. It's wild. It's well, wild. I mean, culturally, it's completely different. Um, yes. <laughs> I had I had the advantage of of. Of growing up in a in a or being born in a socialist government before it collapsed, right? Mm. You, you know, a lot of people like to point to communism and socialism as being the issue why you know governments fall apart and why people don't have enough to eat, but they never look at um, the the political issues against it. So uh, just recently, about probably a year ago, I I started looking at some. Uh, U.S. Congress uh, issues that they've passed. And um, in 1991, I, I don't remember the details. I'm going to have to look this up again. But um, the U.S. Congress voted on uh, the IMF giving financial uh, rescue or, or help to the Yugoslav area only if they had fair elections. Now, we probably heard that before in South America when it comes to uh, other countries that have some kind of a socialist or labor movements. Yep. yep. And we all know how that worked out. Yep. But here we are, um, 
you know, 20, almost 20, well, 16 years after the end of the war, where all the Yugoslav republics are separate, uh, they uh, they exercise crony capitalism where everything mm-hmm. has been privatized where, mm. uh, and people say like, you know, Hey, uh, you know, capitalism helps people and communism destroys countries. Right. I mean, that's, that's one way of looking at it. If you are incapable of reading books and, <laughs> and, and analysis, but also, the nationalism issue is also a, a huge problem where, com- yes, communism is was in Yugoslavia, but underlying nationalism and and the way that uh, United States and the West Western European countries influence the breakup of mm-hmm. these countries uh, is is not it's not an easy subject. It's not a, you know, a 15 minute Prager U video that you can do you can watch. No, it's not. It's it's volumes of books that you know uh, don't you know it's it's not something that people it's not sexy right it's not something that people go and you know have a movie night about it or like hey let's read you know books about Balkans right and the I thing mean, is the thing ahead, is Sean. about the whole uh, the whole deal too is that the United States has always been involved in making countries safe for capitalism that's been our primary exactly. goal and 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 that's exactly. all of this hypocritical patriotism that you get and this is frankly why i am so tired of the 911 hoopla that happens every year i mean i mm-hmm. I, you know, I certainly want to honor the victims okay and i certainly want to honor people who served in our military cuz they they had nothing to do with any of this but i'm just bone tired of of how the whole thing has been used to justify all of this kind of american you know efforts to support you know what's what's good for corporations what's good for the banks what's good exactly. for military contractors all over the world and you know we, and then it also there's also a double standard in terms of valuing life right we have 911 deaths you know around 3000 afghanistan war deaths about 2000 covid has exceeded 911's casualty counts by a factor of like 200 okay and <laughs> right. there's this selective outrage over um 9-11 coupled with the silence on accountability for COVID deaths. And, and this is all part of this rah-rah capitalist mindset, right? If, if it's a military, it's good. If it's, if you know, uh, but mm-hmm. if it's something that we have to do, an obligation we have to take care of in our own country, now it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Um, so it, that hypocrisy is just killing me. And it's why I, I don't even want to necessarily even participate in any 9-11 celebrations. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know how much time we have, but I, I could write a book about what went wrong on 9-11 from an engineering standpoint and talk about that. And there's already been a lot of books about it. But uh, one thing I do know about construction methods is that the towers were super unique architecturally. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that contributed to why they fell and why people weren't able to get out. And the main difference is, is that, that structurally most skyscrapers use the core as structural support, right? Uh, and the, the twin towers use the skin mostly, right? And so there was a span between the skin of the towers, which, by the way, was went from four inches thick at the bottom to only a quarter inch thick at the top because it was literally a sort of pyramidal structure of this of this metal. Normally, that 
exterior metal is like cladding. It's that that's, that's over concrete. But in on the twin towers, it was actually structural, and that was what was holding up these these giant concrete slabs that were each floor, right? So that is why um, people couldn't get out, <laughs> is because of that change in the design. And there was actually an incident that occurred. I think it was in the 1930s where a plane hit the Empire State Building, and the building did not collapse. And right. it was a pretty big plane that hit the Empire State <laughs> Building, and it, it you know it just killed people on that floor. It didn't kill uh, uh, you know it did the whole building didn't fall down. So, um, without belaboring this point, there's a really good book called 102 Minutes. It's by Kevin Flynn and Jim Dwyer, and it's outstanding. It, it's outstanding, and and there's so so much irony in those stories of who escaped and who didn't and why. And and then there's the NIST report, which everybody should have read. <laughs> you know, I read that like 20 years ago when it came out, <laughs> and it, it, it that should have immediately put to rest any of the conspiracy theories. And of course, it fucking didn't. Of course, it didn't. <laughs> um, and, and I just, I you know, just br- wrapping this up. There's no way to stop capitalists from gutting regulations without cracking down on corruption in society generally, and that would require a sustained prosecutorial effort that would be attacked before it could even get started. And I just don't know at this point how you begin rooting out you know, that kind of corruption from a system. It's already figured out how to take down any reformers mm. using slander and dirty tricks. It basically, if you're a, if you're a reformer, they, they, they brand you as a troublemaker. They trot out some scandal. They'll find some prostitute to you know take you down. There's always a way of taking down reformers, and I don't know, like uh, you know, that's probably not in our scope of the show today. But this is how reforms are blocked: is through like creating uh, counter narratives and counter scandals. Yeah, at, at, that's really an interesting point, Sean. And one of the things I, I read that book as well, and one of the things that really got me. Um, was the lack of communication between the fire and the police people. Like, basically, after 1993, they didn't, like, there were some lessons were learned, but certainly not enough. And what, what I, what I, one of the takeaways that I had was that, basically, the fire department is an old boys club, was an old Mm -hmm. boys club. The NYPD was an old boys club and they were there was a rivalry and they had their old way of do, doing things and they just didn't want to change. I mean, you had things where people were like, "Oh, well, they, we just don't like these radios because we used to do it this way, so we don't we're going to stick with these." Like 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 so many layers of this kind of just like, "Well, that's the way we always did it." Um mm-hmm. and then at, and then afterward, right, there was this whole like heroes narrative and you know, absolutely heroes and all that, but you know, so many firemen died unnecessarily because literally just because they didn't have the radios that they needed to understand what was actually going on. And so we should definitely, like you're saying, Sean, I also get really annoyed with the sort of, with the, with the nine 11 sort of narrative that you hear, not because those, the people that we shouldn't be sorry that people died, not because people, not because we shouldn't honor heroes. We should all, and certainly people who went and fought, but because what it does is it obscures the systemic problems that led to it in the fucking first place. One of which that you have, you know, uh, you have a, um, uh, how do you say, developers writing the building code. I mean, come on, right? Like, come on. This sort of thing, like, that's a systemic problem. You have a problem where the fire department and the, and, and the NYPD are acting like two brothers that can't get along instead of instead of people. You know, this is the sort of systemic problems that have, that frankly... I don't know the extent that they've been that they've been really, uh, really sort of dealt with at this point, you know, but anyway, that's my they, takeaway. They haven't. And if you actually look at this condo collapse in Miami, you know, like, like there's mm. all there's all kinds of problems with not only regulations, but inspections and then payoffs. And just it just goes on and on that the, 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 the and and and. 
it's really interesting because as bad as we have it here, it's way worse in other places. In the right, world. way <laughs> worse. Right, the corruption is way deeper. Right. Um, you want to comment on that, Almir? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I don't want to get get caught up in the you know like yeah things in the United States are bad, but look at Afghanistan. They don't have any roads, mm-hmm. right? Right. Um, <laughs> right. You know, it's like okay, yeah, but before we start exporting our our policies to to a country that we have helped destroy in the 1990s and 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 in 2000s and 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 so on and so forth let's fix our own backyard mm-hmm. right because uh i think it was reported that NYPD has a budget of like 6 billion dollars a year and yet in a past year year and a half they have around a thousand officers dying from COVID. Wow. So, so what, ha- what are they spending their money on? Right. It's it also uh, going back to, you know, the um, regulations, building regulations. I, I remember watching a little bit of a segment of Joe Rogan and, 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 uh, and Ruben, <laughs> Ruben guy. report, right. They were, t- going back and forth about and this is I'll, I'll give Joe Rogan some credit here um, when when you know Ruben Ruben was saying like you know like oh the all these regulations are stifling growth right and he's like look at the building regulations and and Joe Rogan's like like wait you do understand that that these building regulations actually help homeowners because how many stories do have we ever heard that all these builders, all these contractors are willing to do the right thing, the, ex- <laughs> the, the expensive thing without these codes being written. Because, you know, like, yeah, people go like, oh, these building codes, they're going to, you know, going to cost me, you know, thousands of dollars to, to, to abide by them. But they don't understand the reason why they exist structurally. You know, when I was redoing my kitchen, uh, you know, I was reading up on these things like you can't have an outlet this close to a water source because of obvious reasons. The uh, <laughs> water and electricity don't really, you know, work together. They they throw some sparks. They can electrify the water, creating a hazard for you to walk. You know, oh, yeah, I want to grab a cup, you know, a glass of water. You could die if there is... <laughs> you know, a, a, a short circuit in your in your outlet and you have a leak. I understand that that's fear mongering to these people, but it's a possibility. A good example is Texas last year. Oh, my God. Where, you know, all of these builders didn't abide by the code or Texas doesn't have codes. And that's why people or these builders were able to quote a price and then do a half-assed job uh, insulating pipes, insulating electrical conduits, insul- insulating motors for for electricity, for water, and, and stuff like that. And we saw what kind of disaster that, that happened. But people forgot because why? Because Texas, well, first of all, it was an election year or it <laughs> happened earlier this year. I, I'm, I'm sorry. Like everything has... All these two years have gone into like a 24-hour period. So everything is like, <laughs> well, you know, I, it happened 10 years ago, right? 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it, I think your point is a really good one, and that is like some things are like the market forces are great for a lot of things, but you can't just certainly safety. You can't just throw that into the market and say like, oh, or utilities and just be like, all right, let's just see what happens. Let's see. Because like you say, right, uh, is the lowest cut. Basically, everyone will try and cut costs. I mean, that is sort of the natural thing to do, right? Well, and with building with buildings, it's particularly bad because it's very easy to hide the evidence. Okay, I mean, and this happens in this country. We actually have pretty good concrete regulations, but in other countries, sometimes the concrete is so soft that it will just crumble in your hand, right? right. And and a building can actually stand up with concrete that's like that until there's even a slight earthquake or some sort of natural disaster, and then mm-hmm. the whole thing falls. And the same thing here. The, the same reason why people couldn't get out of the stairwells in you know in the twin towers is the same reason why your home might fall down 20 years after the fact. And you would have no way of knowing that there was this design defect when you bought it. And that's the reason why these building codes are so important. And Republicans just, it's criminal. Like what they're doing mm-hmm. is criminal when they try to destroy these codes. I, yeah, couldn't agree more. I, Almir, I, I want to I just sort of jump into your experience in Afghanistan um, at sort of at this point. Um, I know you were on the ground there. Um, so what, if anything, do you want to express to our audience about the experience of being and, and you know, in the in the military in Afghanistan about being a combat veteran, um, it, the entire experience Like, what I just want to give you the floor here. What are we missing about about that experience? Um, wow. Where to begin from <laughs> from, you know, my experience five years after September 11th. Uh, being there, uh, being the, uh, you know, I was 24 years old. I, w- I was uh, pretty immature when it came down to, you know, the mission that, that we had in Afghanistan. What, right? what were you told was your mission? I, I mean, we, we, we went in there uh, hoping to change lives of, of the Afghan people to nation build to mm-hmm. ensure that um, they can go on with their daily lives, which I, I would say as an infantryman, as, as an officer at that time, I don't think we were, we were ready. I don't think we were mm. in any, any way capable of understanding uh, the, not only the cultural differences, but the systems that were lacking in, in Afghanistan to... Uh, to build that government up from zero, especially in a country that had a civil war um, every five years and people in that country didn't share a common language or a, a common culture because you leave one little village and right, you know, on the other side of the mountains, they have a different dialect. They have mm. a different structure. And then, you know, you drive five kilometers down a valley and, you know, you meet you meet some villagers from a little little village that's right next to the river that is completely different from the place that you visited 15 minutes ago. Hmm. And they, they, their concerns are completely different than the people in Kabul, in Jalalabad, Asadabad, all these cities, because I don't think that people, especially 
reactionaries, the American reactionaries don't understand um, or they do know they they do understand that there's a difference between an Afghan in Kabul and an Afghan in in Panjir or Afghan in in the Korngol Valley or Afghan uh, in, in, in the, you know, in the southern province of Afghanistan in, in you know, outside of Kandahar are outside of Zabul, that they have different concerns, they ha- that they have different issues that they have to take care of on, on, on a daily basis. And I'm going to be honest, I was pretty ignorant on this. Why? Because you take an American soldier that has grown up not worrying, well, not really worrying about the government functioning, Mm-hmm. And you're tossing them into a country that that has no infrastructure, right? That that has no uh, no capability to sustain themselves. Not because they are uh, not a, an advanced culture, but because they have no means, or they have never they have a they have never developed it. It's just that because they have never worried about. Right. It's yeah. like, you know, going to Brazil, going to the Amazon and and finding all these tribes that have no need for an iPhone. It doesn't mean that they are, you know, not not your equals when it comes to culture. It just means that they never worried about it. Right. You know, like kids don't worry about the latest Playstations that have come out or the latest iPhones that have been built in China or, or things like that. It's just, there's different concerns. Mm -hmm. And when you pluck a child or an 18 year old out of high school in United States, in, I don't know, Tennessee, (laughs) and you, and you put them in Afghanistan, they're going to use their own. Why can't you be like me? Why can't, why is this 19 year old adult behaving differently than me? They Mm -hmm. it's it. They don't understand it. It's yeah. it's it's almost the same as taking a, a person that lived in New York City his whole life and somebody that lives in Mobile, Alabama. Mm-hmm. They don't they but the, the thing is they do share the standard the American standard of living, whatever that may be, and a and a common language. Whereas in Afghanistan, cities, villages, they don't share that cohesion as they do in the United right. States, even though, you know, you'll hear about, oh, you Yankees do it this way. Oh, you're from New Jersey, you know, like, oh, you know, we do it differently in Alabama and stuff like that. It's it's not so clear cut. And and this goes back down to, I think, in United States, uh, being that we have a very good example of what the government can do for the people if it's properly funded. Mm hmm. Versus what the government can do for the people if it's properly corrupt. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Because yeah. if if I mean, if the United States had an occupying military right now, I think a lot of people forget to realize that there are some things that would be common to the Afghans and to Americans at the same time, regardless of where they grew up. Yeah. Right. So, so uh, Amir, what what was your role in in Afghanistan? So I know I, I I read your bio, but just let us know like what like what did you do there? 
So majority of my time, I, pr- I worked as a, a provider security for um, provincial reconstruction team, which was uh, a team that was that was based out of American base whose only priority or only task was to uh, hire engineers, hire um, like local builders and and stuff and and people like that to build up the infrastructure of uh of of a town or a city or or you know like for instance a uh, couple of things that we were involved with while well, the air force people there were uh building a well uh building a, a girls school um and and here's i'm gonna show some american ignorance here that the uh the female Colonel that I worked with, her major concern was to get these up armored Toyotas to the uh, provincial governor because the guy before him was murdered right in front of the uh, the government building. Wow. Um, and and she wanted like this was her priority, like she harped on it every meeting that we went to. And right before I redeployed back to the United States, uh, these four beautiful 2007 Land Cruisers arrived on our base. At uh, and I, I'm not kidding you, a sticker price of two hundred and fifty thousand dollars each. Oh my <laughs> God! Yeah, <laughs> I. I don't want to speculate what happened to those Land Cruisers uh, <laughs> um, post Taliban takeover, but I'm pretty sure that they were either in disrepair or they're being utilized right now. But um, yeah, I'm sure they are. I'm sure they are. Um, I-, I want to um, read an excerpt guys and i'd love for you especially up here but both all of us to sort of to, to sort of uh respond to it um i'm quoting now from the washington post uh, a confidential trove of government documents obtained by the washington post reveals that senior u.s officials failed to tell the truth about the war in afghanistan throughout the 18-year campaign making rosy pronouncements they knew to be false and hiding unmistakable evidence that the war had become unwinnable The documents were generated by a federal project examining the the root failures of the longest armed conflict in U.S. history. They include more than 2,000 pages of previously unpublished notes of interviews with people who played a direct role in the war, from generals and diplomats to aid workers and Afghan officials. The U.S. government tried to shield the identities of the vast majority of of those interviewed for the project and conceal nearly all all of their remarks, but the Post won release of the documents under a Freedom of Information Act after a three-year battle. Um, And here is just some of the stuff that was in there, um, and I just want to read it really quickly. Um, If Iraq was the war born of lies and Afghanistan was the one nurtured by them, Afghanistan was where al-Qaeda, supported by the Taliban, had made its base. It was supposed to be the good war, the right war, the war of necessity and not choice, the war endorsed at home and abroad. U.S. officials had no need to lie or spin to justify the war. Yet leaders at the White House, the Pentagon, and the State Department soon began to make false assurances and to paper over setbacks on the battlefield. As the years passed, the deceit became entrenched. What was what had been called, quote, an unspoken conspiracy 
to hide the truth. Commanding generals privately admitted that they long fought the war, quote, without a functioning strategy, that two years into the conflict, Rumsfeld complained that he, quote, had no visibility into what the bad guys are. A former coordinator of Iraq and Afghanistan policy acknowledged that, quote, we didn't have the foggiest idea what we were undertaking. The U.S. officials long wanted to withdraw Afghanistan forces, but feared, correctly so it turns out, that the Afghan government might collapse. Bin Laden hoped for this exact scenario to lure the U.S. superpower into an unwinnable guerrilla conflict that would deplete its national treasure and diminish its global influence. All along, top officials publicly contradicted these internal views, issuing favorable accounts of steady progress, bad news twisted into good. Rising suicide attacks in Kabul meant the Taliban was too weak for combat, for instance, while increased U.S. casualties meant America was taking the fight to the enemy. The skill and size of the Afghan security forces were frequently exaggerated. By the end of President Barack Obama's second term, U.S. officials concluded that some 30,000 Afghan soldiers on the payroll didn't even exist. There were paper creations of local commanders who pocketed the fake soldiers' salaries at U.S. taxpayers' expense. End quote. Now, Almir, does that piss you off? Or, like, what, how do you respond to that? How do you, like, what does that make you feel like uh, I as, mean, as a person who served? I'm not surprised. It's... Yeah, you know, it's it it not, don't want to be the guy that's that's gonna be you know saying I told you so, <laughs> but uh, uh, I told you so. Re- reading numerous books written by American ambassadors and and people who uh, who had direct contact with the Mujahideen back in 1980, I'm not surprised. Hmm. I I'm not surprised that. The bureaucracy that that um, that safeguards the system has uh, reacted this way. Um, yeah. If you look at the, po- uh, the the generals that were in charge of of all these missions in CENTCOM, Iraq, Afghanistan, and 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 the like, even Africa. Where have they gone after retirement? Right? Yeah. Um, our current uh, our current civilian workforce, especially those that are in the decision making levels, um, uh, you know, General Austin, for instance, when I was going when I was coming to Fort Drum, he was the commanding general of Tent Mountain. Um, mm. after he retired, and I believe up until last year, he was on the board of directors for Raytheon. And, uh, uh. and now he's making decisions for our defense strategy. I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying that he's a corrupt individual. Mm-hmm. He, he might be a fine you know, uh, defense secretary. It's just that the background that he has and that he transitioned from the military into Raytheon, who is one of the biggest military contractors, and yeah. then coming into the <laughs> Department of Defense at the SecDef position doesn't really give me the, um, <laughs> well, the uh, you know, I'm not really confident that he's going to make decisions that are helping 
not only the people in in the sphere of influence of United States, but the United States military and the contractors that that we are beholden to. Yeah, he he might be an outstanding person. He might even be a progressive, but that's that doesn't bode well. His background doesn't really bode well. Yes, he is a, a black. Uh, officer, you know, a general, which is no small feat in the United States military. For sure. I'm not taking it away from him. It, it's interesting because um, if you, um, it, without casting any aspersions on General Austin, okay, if you want accountability, you cannot create conflicts of interest. That's right. You just can't. And, and so, you know, you put good people into a bad situation like that. And you, you, what you end up having is the same thing that we had in Afghanistan, which was the number one goal of Osama bin Laden was to bleed the U S of money through long-term military entanglements. And he accomplished that check, right? Mm -hmm. The next goal was to empower our own internal hardliners, the Republicans. He did that check. Okay. He stoked internal divisions uh, by causing us to immediately suspect anyone of Arab descent and even people who were from India who had nothing to do, who were just <laughs> happened to be brown, right? Sikhs, uh, Sikhs right? were being were being attacked after 9-11. So yeah, right. Don't don't bring that up because then people will talk about you being woke and worrying about the Sikh population in the United States. Because, you know, American patriotism, right? <laughs> well, God, I mean, it's just, but it's just like we, these would, would have been his, I don't, you know, I don't read Osama bin Laden, but I, I can pretty much promise you that these were his goals when, when launching this attack, because For he sure. knew that it wasn't going to beat us militarily, but he knew that he could create, this was like acid, you know, at the foundations of, of our nation. And, and, and particularly when you consider our infrastructure, which is rotting. Okay. And if you can imagine how if we taken $6 trillion and put mm. that into our own infrastructure, just in terms of energy. Okay. And I did, I've done this. That's socialism. Don't talk about socialism <laughs> like that. You, you can't, but it's like, we can build it for other people. We can build it for mm -hmm. Afghans and then, and then have it get taken over like, okay, $6 trillion. Real quick math, 100 million complete home solar power systems at $30,000 each. Free. Mm. Give away 100 million. That's like 100 million families can have free electricity now. Okay. And then you can also give them each a $30,000 electric car. 100 million of those. That's what $6 trillion equals. Okay. And that's the same price as the Afghan war. And we would have cut our oil consumption by half probably our carbon emissions by half or two thirds. And, you know, instead we now have a nation that's a shadow of what it once was in the year 2000. We've got a larger GDP now, but our political system is in tatters. We've got a huge fount of disinformation and propaganda that we just allow to just bleed all over us. Mm. We've got, uh, we're full of openly expressed racism and hatred and tens of millions of people are teetering on the edge of poverty. I mean, I can't imagine a worse uh, you know, or, or more an outcome that would be more in line with what Osama bin Laden wanted to have happen to our country. Yeah, I, I thought about this the same way, Sean. And that is like, right, if he was playing the long game, he has won. I mean, right. And that's such an <laughs> awful thing to say. We killed him. Right. We destroyed like we really uh, like uh, Al Qaeda is we Al Qaeda was kicked out. The Taliban were kicked out. Right. Like 
like there was a lot of positive things that happened, but the long game and I and I and I think the biggest one that you mentioned there, Sean, I've been I've been thinking about this a lot. And that is basically like the like right in the same way that that Russia tries to sow disinformation, right? Because that's how you take down a superpower, right? Mm-hmm. Basically, because we're a democrat, we're like they're at least theoretically a democracy. So we can't. So you can't one per you. You have to break down consensus. That's what you have to do, right? You have to destroy consensus, and that is what. The, the, the Russians do with their disinformation, and that is exactly what uh, what what Osama bin Laden did in the long term, right? And and I think the things that you brought up were were, were really critical. Um, so, you know, it's scary to think that way. It's kind of we're like, holy shit, did this guy win? But I mean, and like going back to what you said, Almir, it's like, what do we have to show for it after twenty years? All we have is a an empowered right wing. Um, a democracy that is on life support, uh, right, and 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 religious zealots. Ironically, ironically, mm-hmm. re- like the, the ironically religious zealots taking power in the United States. If you're Osama bin Laden, you're like cha-ching, and you know <laughs> I won, I won, and and that's an awful thing to say, you know. And um, you know the Afghanistan papers, all of that is is. For me, it just looks like human nature. It looks like people wanting, seeing what they want to see, believing what they want to believe, um, and not wanting to pay political po- political consequences. I mean, probably some good faith stuff. You're talking about about General Austin. I'm sure he's a really decent guy. But when you throw people and to go to your point, Sean, when you put good people in bad situations, right? Bad things happen, and and this is and this is where we end up. Um, well, guys, we are sort of at the end of our time, believe it or not. Um, but Almir, I want to get, I want you to, uh, you know, to have a moment just to say, you know, uh, whatever you want to say, whether it be about Afghanistan or motorcycling or how much you hate hearing my voice, whatever you want to talk about, um, just give you the last word. Yeah. It's just to, just to iterate what we just talked about. Absolutely. Um, go for it. You know, I, I, I like reading books about World War II and, um, the partisan movement in Yugoslavia. I've read very thick books written by some of the scholars, the American scholars. And one of the reasons why Hitler lost uh, the, the Eastern Front to the Soviet military, not only because the Soviet military recovered, is because Yugoslavia uh, and Tito and the partisans opened up another front for him to worry about. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, I think that the uh, Yugoslav front took about six to eight divisions of the German military uh, from the Eastern front to the Yugoslav front to in, to kind of ensure that the partisans were, you know, uh, resistance was stifled. So that's no small feat. That's six to eight divisions not fighting against the Russians. And, and that's something that Stalin kind of pushed for in 1942, 1943. Uh, that, that goes to, I think, Osama bin Laden never had the intention of beating us militarily because right. you can't. They, uh, not only you can't, but we have gone to, to such extent of... of uh, technological advancements that we've kind of forgotten how to do things interpersonally, right? Walking, uh, talking to people and stuff like that. Something that Al-Qaeda and the Taliban are pretty good at. 
<laughs> mm-hmm. uh, just to recap our, our uh, you know, war on terror 20 years later, uh, after President Bush declared that the Taliban is no more, that Al-Qaeda has no influence in, in Afghanistan, that the Afghan people have the U.S. government and a nation as influencing their way forward. 20 years later, both Iraq and Afghanistan are devoid of U.S. military presence, whereas the Taliban and Al-Qaeda are back and influencing the area, not only influencing, but they have plethora of equipment that they can sell. Yeah, ours. Equipment, right, equipment that they can use. I'm not talking about Black Hawks because Black Hawks, tanks, stuff like that, that works on, on motors is very complex to, to maintain. Even we have issues maintaining that equipment. <laughs> I don't think they're going to be as proliferate as that. They might sell it to somebody else. Uh, but they they have the technology right now. And the U.S. government will have to acknowledge them, mm. at least the Taliban, as the rightful government of Afghanistan. Whereas 20 years ago, we had a chance to force them to have diplomatic discourse with the political uh, parties in Afghanistan because, they, yes, they are secular Afghans. Yes, they are communists in Afghanistan. Yes, they are Democrats. In, in tw- 2001, they could have played the role in forming that government and informing their people, creating a nation from the ground up, whereas now they either have to be... Hi- gone into hiding or they are somewhere in Europe or had the luck to jump on one of those planes to come mm. to a more progressive country. And yeah. I'm it's it's one of those, you know, we were here, the apex has been reached in 2001, not 2020, and we've been sliding down with the influence ever since. I've, Taliban didn't go from zero to 100 percent of of Afghan uh, control. They controlled about 75 percent of Afghanistan last year. This didn't happen overnight. You might look at it because the media wants you to care now, whereas 10 years ago, it was the forgotten war. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's I mean, that I, I hope that this kind of spurs people's intellectual uh ability to want to go and research and read books. I read a really good book. Let me get it real quick. Uh, the The Wars of Afghanistan by Peter Thompson. And he okay. used to, he, he was the uh, Afghan attache back in 1980s. And he writes about the conflicts that he had, not only with Afghans, but the Pakistan government and the CIA back in 1980s that didn't enable him to do his job. Gotcha. Yeah. And that's well, it. That's that's what I just wanted to put out there. And 
that was really, really great and really, really useful. Amir, we'll put that um, we'll put that book in the show notes along with uh, along with the other uh, articles and books that we've mentioned here, like 102 Minutes, which everyone should go read. Um, so anyway, Almir, thank you so much for being with us today. It was a lot of fun, very informative, um, and hopefully we'll be able to have you back again. I appreciate the platform. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Absolutely, and we'll uh, we'll I'll see you out there out there on the road, and we'll uh, we'll have some tacos. We'll definitely have tacos. <laughs> All right, man. Take it easy. Well, that was really great talking to Almir. I think you know he has a really sort of unique perspective, an interesting perspective. I love hearing. Uh, these stories of folks that came to the United States and really built something and have really contributed and who are not that that is a requirement, but he did do those things. And he is a pretty impressive guy from that perspective. Do you have any uh, final thoughts, Sean? Yeah, I agree. I completely agree. I was very impressed with him. And, you know, somebody's personality really doesn't come through on Facebook. And if you haven't mm. talked to someone face to face and really just hearing him talk and under seeing how grounded he is yes. for, you know, given the experiences that he's had, what he's been through and how, how much he is, you know, he's, he's, this is what, this is what makes America great. Damn it. <laughs> you know, is having people come here and, exactly. and become one of us. And that is, uh, that, that is true of him in spades. That's so true. And you become one of us and then change us, right? Like, right, because that's how it works, right? Like, we evolve, right? We grow with them, we become better as a result of that. And that is something that I think is hard for conservatives for whatever reason to, uh, <laughs> we can talk about all the fucking reasons we spent the last year plus talking about all those fucking reasons, and we will continue talking about those reasons. Um, but seriously, uh, it, it, it was really a joy to have him here. Almir, if you're listening to this, again, thank you for being here. And I'll see you out there for some tacos um now remember please everyone out there if you like our show make sure to subscribe leave a review and really go leave a review come on do it uh check out our patreon and tell your friends to listen new episodes post mondays at noon eastern on youtube and all the major podcast channels and we publish new articles weekly at our journal at the radicalsecular.com i'm christoph devo thank you for being here and remember that wherever you are you can be radically secular The Radical Secular Podcast is written and produced by Christoph Defoe, Sean Prophet, Joe Okipinti, and Drew Scott. Artwork and design by Tim Stetner. Post-production and theme music by Sean Prophet. Special thanks to our support team, Lindsay Brightman, Jillian Sky Jacobs, and Lori Field Okipinti.